Welcome back, Eigen family. So, guys, make sure you like, share, comment, subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, make sure you check out the website, eigenbros.com, eigenbros on Instagram, eigenbros on Twitter, eigenbros2 on TikTok. And, of course, patrons, guys, we greatly appreciate all you've done, all the support you give us. You know, check out patreon.com slash eigenbros if you guys have not done so already. Me and Juan do our 30-minute podcast there every week. So make sure you check that out, and you also get Discord access. Just $1 is all we ask. And guys, as the title suggests, I'm sure this is going to be an interesting episode for you. We have a special guest with us today. So he uh, has his bachelor's in physics from, I mean, bachelor's uh, in mechanical engineering from South Alabama. He has a master's in, in mechanical engineering as well from Wichita uh, State. Is that right, Sonny? Yep, right. Okay, right, perfect. <laughs> and, then, and then he has his PhD in physics from Rice University, and he is the director of re, uh, re, uh, the, <laughs> the director of advanced research um, at the Limitless Space Institute. And our guest is Harold Sonny White. Welcome, Sonny. Welcome, Sonny. Hey, thanks, Terrence. Thanks, my memory was failing. So there. Appreciate appreciate the, the splendid uh, the splendid introduction. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, always, always happy always happy to, to talk physics and uh, you know geek it up with fellow colleagues. So. I appreciate you guys giving me some of your time too. So, and I, I love the fact that you have a whiteboard behind you for crying out loud. <laughs> you have to have a whiteboard. Jeez, are we? <laughs> well, we got to admit though, Sonny doesn't get much use because it's kind of not the best for doing podcasts. We've noticed <laughs> math while people are trying to listen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Because right, right. we do have the YouTube and the audio only, you know. Mm -hmm. So. We can't we can't be discriminatory against the audio only listeners. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. All they can hear is the squeak. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. They can imagine the equations. Right. Imagine if you would. <laughs> A spherical cow. I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> right. <laughs> the old classic. Yeah. Yes. No, but yeah. but seriously, uh, thank you for coming on, Sonny. You know, this is a this is a topic that's very much all over the the scientific community that gets heralded as like a, a very um future sci-fi oriented kind of thing but you know yeah. you coming on i feel will help ground some of this conversation right mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's definitely a definitely a topic that uh, people get really excited about, mm -hmm. uh, and certainly there's some interesting math and, and physics that uh, uh, kind of underpin it. That uh, it's good to make sure you talk about it in that context, right? For sure, for sure. Right. So, Sonny, I guess we wanted to start off a little bit with just like your background, you know, where you're coming from, you know, just kind of to get the audience a little understanding of you yourself, and you know, like how you actually came mm -hmm. up to be interested in this stuff because. You know, you came from an engineering background, and then right, you went to right. physics. It's like, um, what, 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 what inspired you to go that way? Because almost it feels like it's like, why would you want to go there when you already know how to make everything? <laughs> you <know>? Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you know, I I, um, uh, I started working in the aerospace industry in 1996, working up at uh, Boeing in uh, Wichita, Kansas, uh, working on commercial aircraft, doing some R and D up there, um, primarily with with composites, but. Um, uh, I, you know, I came across uh, Miguel Acubier's uh, paper on space works when I was up in uh, Wichita, and I had a, I had a printout of it, and uh, just it was such a fascinating topic to me. <clears throat> I was very interested in it. I was actually interested in a lot of advanced power propulsion, always kind of have been. 
Um, but, uh, you know, that was one of those things that just really, it, it landed on me pretty good. And I, I knew in the long run, a lot of the things that I was really excited about um, were, you know, related to physics. And so that was kind of where I had to do a lot of soul searching, uh, getting my master's while I was up at, uh, up in Wichita, at uh, Wichita State. And um, I decided at that point I needed to switch over to physics. So I think it was, you know, kind of the love of that and recognizing that in order to kind of explore and, and really be able to articulate that I needed to, to kind of think about switching to physics. But, you know, let me, let me go back just a little bit further too, in terms of why, why aircraft, why space, why advanced power repulsion, right? And, um, you know, I, I grew up uh, outside of um, Washington, D.C. Spent a lot of time getting a chance to walk around the Air and Space Smithsonian. This is pre-Uvar Hazy days, like in the, in the late 80s. And, um, you know, if, if, if you guys have ever, ever had a chance to go to the National Air and Space Museum up in D.C., it's got a lot of those big, giant rooms with incredible... Uh, examples of the the growth of technology and understanding and, and knowledge and you know it, it to me it's it's not just about about the rocket ships or the planes uh to me it was also about the people right the people that worked together uh to kind of realize those things and continue to push the boundaries of knowledge and and kind of make life better with each evolution of of understanding right you know when you when you first walk into the National Air and Space Museum, you got the right flyer on one side, and then you have, you know, Spaceship One just across the way and the, the lunar lander right there in the middle. And it's just like, that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful example of not just working together, you know, in the moment, but also together over time, right? And so there's so many, you know, good messages in there. I just really connected with that and uh, always had an interest in, in, in aviation and in space and kind of recognized uh, at the early age that, uh, you know, there was some, some significance about power and propulsion, but the, the bit really got set in terms of switching me to, to physics when I was um, uh, up in Wichita, kind of reading over Miguel Acubier's paper. So I, I moved to, uh, if you don't mind, I'll just kind of keep going and give a little bit more of my background here. Sure. Uh, yeah, go for it. Um, in, uh, in 2000, I got an opportunity to come down to Houston, Texas and get into the space program. Uh, and I worked at uh, NASA for, you know, 19, little over 19 years um, I spent about half that time working flight robotics, the shuttle arm uh, and the, the station robotic arm, uh, doing a lot of flight support in the process of building the International Space Station. But I've always, as I said, always interested in advanced parent propulsion. And uh, my, my management to, you know, knew that that was my passion. And over time, building credibility and, and working really hard in flight robotics gave a lot of people comfort, comfort with me representing uh, the agency at a high level for advanced power propulsion. And so in 2009, I kind of I got an opportunity to shift uh, into, you know, advocating for advanced power propulsion uh, as my full-time gig, if you will. Uh, and so I did that from, you know, about 10 years, um, got a chance to, you know, work on human exploration architectures, finding ways to integrate things like hall thrusters into human spaceflight. And although that's not like, you know, warp drive, but I mean, think about, we've only used chemical propulsion for, for human spaceflight. So trying to advocate for and show the value proposition of, of hall thrusters was a unique challenge. And, you know, hall thrusters are in, in the next chapter of human spaceflight. That, that's a thing now. So it's neat to have been, uh, you know, a part of that, uh, that process. But um, uh, while I was working at NASA, uh, you know, got a chance to work on uh, advanced forms of power and propulsion, uh, like uh, nuclear reactors, nuclear thermal propulsion. I was on the 
nuclear systems working group, uh, helped the agency kind of prioritize how it spends its money uh, on nuclear systems, worked on the technology OCT Office of Chief Technologist uh, uh, roadmaps, where we went through and articulated the different things we might want to uh, try and do for uh, uh, future technologies to be used for, for human spaceflight. Um, and uh, in 2019, um, I got a call from Brian B.K. Kelly, a retired NASA guy. He was a head, former head of uh, the flight operations directorate here at NASA. So he, you know, he picked the astronauts and the crew, very well, well respected uh, human being, amazing, amazing person. Um, so when he called, I was like, yeah, I'd love to come chat with you. I had no idea what he wanted to chat with me about. But so he said, hey, I'm starting up this nonprofit uh, uh, with a friend of mine, Cam Gaffarian, uh, called Limitless Space Institute. And uh, we were hoping maybe you can kind of come help us stand this thing up because we think the things that we're trying to do are, are things that you might be interested in. And so uh, after some some thought and some prayer, it made sense to do that. And so I uh, uh, switched gears and, and joined Limitless Space Institute. And just the, uh, you know, 60 second bio on what, you know, what is Limitless Space Institute? Our mission is to inspire and educate the next generation to travel beyond our solar system and to support the research and development of enabling technologies. And I mean, wow, that's uh, that's amazingly challenging, right? You know, um, uh, we're trying to work to enable interstellar flight by the end of the century. And oh my gosh, it's so much more than we've ever achieved to date, right? You know, we've got, so you think about space, human spaceflight today, we're looking at putting human beings on the surface of the moon again, in uh, 2024 timeframe, maybe 2025. Uh, we got this cool rover that's sitting on the surface of Mars right now with a little nuclear battery. And it's got its little buddy over there, the little helicopter that uh, hangs out with it. And, and those are amazing achievements, but those are all done with, with chemical propulsion, right? Liquid uh, fuel, liquid oxidizer, you combust it through a nozzle, generates thrust. Right. Amazing thing. And it, you know, it, get, it helps us get stuff to, to low Earth orbit. But if you want to send human beings to Saturn, and you want to get them there in, in 200 days, um, the amount of energy that's necessary to do that um, uh, is an order of magnitude more energy than it takes to get a payload from the surface of the Earth to, to low Earth orbit. So, you know, chemical propulsion is just not, it can't close that, right? It's not, it's not physically possible. And so what are we supposed to do? Are we just supposed to give up? No, there's some things we can do. And, and you know, in terms of ways we can maybe address the the challenge, uh, starting from what we know and working to what we don't know, um, within known physics and known engineering, nuclear electric propulsion, uh, nuclear reactor, uh, fissioning uranium, uh, providing power to some form of electric propulsion can take human beings to every destination in the solar system, right? So that's a, a significant improvement helps us go to that, that beyond thing. Uh, but nuclear electric propulsion would still probably take, you know, a couple thousand years to get to another star system. So I don't know about you guys. That's kind of long to sit on console. I, I think I might need a break or something. Um, but but if you if you you know if you want to try and do interstellar in uh, maybe a, a century or something, we can move a little bit into the unknown, at least in terms of engineering, and talk about fusion, right? Where we're burning deuterium and tritium uh, to generate uh, power and propulsion capability, uh, and that that's been explored in the literature, uh, well understood, at least in terms of the uh, the. the the physics perspective, uh, we could send a, you know, a large probe to another star system and get there uh, in 100 years, potentially, right? Uh, maybe a, a little less. But if we want to get to another star system uh, in a fraction of a human lifetime, that's where we kind of have to look to the frontiers of physics. You, know, you got the, the two standard models of physics, quantum mechanics and the, the you know, lambda cold dark matter model of, of uh, astrophysics. 
Uh, so the small and the, the large, uh, they kind of underpin everything we know, but but they're they're not the whole picture. We know there's a, a, a bigger picture for us to, to uncover. So in the process of trying to figure out, fill in the gaps between those, those two theories, maybe we can figure out how to do things like the idea of a space warp. We know general relativity says it's possible. You know, I couldn't tell you today what we're going to build to make that real, but um, maybe in the process of working the frontiers of physics, we can, we can maybe achieve that. So a little bit longer background bio than you might have wanted, but uh, there you go. And uh, oh, I, I like vanilla ice cream, uh, long walks on the beach, and big strong hands. There you go. <laughs> no, excellent, excellent. We, uh, yeah, that definitely, uh, I mean, you've said a lot of interesting things there. Um, but I guess um, we could transition into the whole you know, the bread and the drive, butter, the bread yeah. and the butter to yeah, say, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, everybody is all curious about the warp drive, you know, what is this warp drive technology and how does a guy uh, think he's going to manage to build something like this? And, you know, you mentioned Al Cubier, uh, Miguel Cubier, who I guess is the, the one who put out the first paper on this, the Al Cubier metric, as they say. 94, 96, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it was 1994. Um, and he, you know, had this crazy write-up about this, you know, this, this uh, you know, sci-fi concept of warp drive, bending space, you know, negative energy states, negative energy densities. Uh, and it's really interesting stuff. And I guess, um, yeah, and, and it inspired you even to, you know, undertake this and try to make it more of reality. So I guess I was just interested to really know, uh, Sonny, like, what was your process um, to bring this to reality because I know that his um, conception of it originally, Miguel's conception was uh, the energy was something like on the order of like the universe that would be required. But then you brought it down to reality by, you know, invoking this toroid shape. Uh, what was your whole thought process behind that? How did you even conceive of that? How did you, how did you go about tackling the problem? Yeah. So <clears throat> I, uh, in, so there's two parts to this story. Uh, one is in 2004 timeframe, and then the other one is like in 2011 timeframe. Uh, and they're actually connected, uh, ironically, and it, weirdly enough. So in 2003, 2004 timeframe, uh, uh, I, I put the Alcubierre metric into canonical form. There were some questions I had about the, the mathematics. And, uh, you know, when he published a paper, he didn't put it in canonical form. Uh, I mean, he could do what he needed to with it, but... Uh, uh, canonical form gives you some additional insights into how the, the, the field might be constructed. Uh, and so in the process of doing that, right, um, uh, uh, that gave me some insights on, on how the, the, the phenomena might work in terms of, because you, you only, the math just tells you what happened when it's on, as opposed to turning it on uh, and turning it off, right? And so putting it in canonical form gave me some insights into that. Um, but I, I hadn't figured out the op energy optimization yet at that point. Al although technically the work I did actually uncovered it, I just didn't see it at the time, ironically. Uh, and so in, in 2011, uh, NASA and DARPA did the 100-year Starship Symposium, uh, and they asked me to come give a talk on, on space warps. And so I, I didn't, I didn't want to just kind of do what had been done before. So I, I decided, well... I guess I'll, I'll do like a sensitivity study and I'll turn the, no the knobs on the equations and vary some of the parameters and just to see, you know, what, what works out of this. And, and in the process of doing that, uh, you know, discovered some, some ways to optimize the amount of exotic matter or, or negative vacuum energy density that might be necessary uh, to, make, uh, to make the trick work. 
Um, you know, the, 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 over the progression of the idea, there's been several papers that have, have been published to kind of put a ballpark estimate on what it would take. And, you know, one paper said, well, more, it'll take more exotic matter than there is mass in the universe, which says, hey, it's, it's a neat mathematical idea, but we're never going to do it. It's just one of those things. Um, but then a, a colleague of mine, uh, uh, Richard Abusi, published a paper where he reduced <laughs> the amount of exotic matter to something about the size of Jupiter, right? And that was a significant improvement, but, you know, that's still, you know, it, it's mathematically interesting, but we're just, you know, it's not something that, you know, we can't, I can't grok that. that that's a lot. Uh, and so in the process of doing the work for a uh, hundred year starship symposium, and, and feel free to interrupt me anytime, Juan, I'm just, I'm well, just talking. And, well, I was, I was going to say in the scale of the universe, Eureka, Jupiter, yeah. <laughs> Still, <laughs> it is a, a big change in numbers of zeros. Yeah. You're right. You're definitely right. A Absolutely. physicist would say, "My job is done." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mike, Mike, drop. Thank you. Yeah. The engineer's problem now. See you later. Yeah, exactly. Right? Roll out of frame. <laughs> no, no. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, a good observation. Good observation. Mm -hmm. So you know, uh, Richard had done a really good job of, of kind of trying to tackle it a little bit. Uh, and in the process of doing some of the, you know, fiddling around with the, the parameters for the field equations, uh, I, I figured out that if you if you change the, um, the, the distribution, the toroidal distribution of negative vacuum energy density, such that instead of being a very a very thin aspect ratio, which is typically what what has been considered in, in analysis has been done in the past, if you make it where it's a little bit more athletic, if you will, so think think a wedding band versus a lifesaver. So in terms of the, the, the mental picture to, to think about for this, this distribution of negative vacuum energy, energy density, changing it from a, a, a thin wedding band type of distribution to kind of more like a, a lifesaver uh, reduces the magnitude of uh, the York time. So it's like it reduces the magnitude of the strain you have to put on space, if you will, how, how much you have to, to, to squeeze and stretch uh, space. And so there's a corresponding nonlinear reduction in the amount of uh, energy density and total energy when you integrate uh, as a result. And so furthermore, if you oscillate the bubble, it changes the, the perceived stiffness of space-time. And so those two optimization techniques uh, allowed for a significant reduction of uh, the amount of exotic matter that's necessary. So uh, what I what I put out in the, the two back-to-back 100-year -back Starship symposiums that NASA and DARPA put out, I wanted to duplicate what Richard Obusi had done. Uh, so I, I set up the, the, the field equations for a, a 10 meter diameter spacecraft with an effective velocity of 10 C. And I said, all right, if I, if I construct the field this way, it requires. Sorry, something just popped up. Yeah, we got it too. Okay, there we gotcha. go. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, <clears throat> by going through and doing this optimization, we can reduce the amount of exotic matter uh, from, from Jupiter, which I was able to show, you know, building the spacecraft this way, uh, to something about the size of the Voyager 1 spacecraft. So you went from, you know, Jupiter, again, an, a large number of, of changes of zeros to something that's just a, a couple of metric tons. And so in, in my mind, that at least, at least moved it into the category of plausible, right? I, I don't know if it's feasible. To me, in order to make that, to say feasible, I think we need to start thinking about, you know, real engineering, what that would look like. But, you know, it's, it's it's no longer quite as 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 exotic of a concept, at least when you think about those kinds of uh, those kinds of numbers, right? So right, um, yeah. So that actually kind of leads me a little bit to the next part. You're talking feasibility. 
Um, I really wanted to also probe you about your um, idea with the, you know, uh, uh, the white Jude or, you know, inspired by the um, Michelson-Morley interferometer. I wanted to kind of probe you with that one to get a better understanding of that because it sounded kind of like you had some inspiration maybe from the uh, LIGO experiments with the gravitational wave detectors. And you were trying to figure out a um, experimental way to actually demonstrate that this is even feasible. Um, using interferometers. So I just, I guess I wanted to just have you relay kind of your ideas and that conception of what you were trying to do there with that experiment. Yeah. So interferometers do provide you uh, a lot of precision, right? Because you can, you can get down to one one hundredth of the wavelength of light that you're, you're noodling around with. So if you're trying to proceed, you know, change perceived path length, uh, that's potentially a pretty useful tool uh, to be thinking about. Uh, and then maybe if you can combine several different things uh, as, you're, as you're doing that. Uh, so in, in, in terms of the stuff we did with the interferometry stuff that we did, uh, you know, we did a lot of work to try and get to the precision down to that one one hundredth of a wavelength of light. Uh, but we also used, uh, MIT had developed some, um, uh, uh, some motion magnification uh, uh, software um, that's just, I mean, absolutely mind-blowing in terms of what it can do. And so uh, with that, I think we, you know, we were able to exceed the, the 100, one one hundredth of a wavelength of light. Um, but uh, in, in terms of the, the way we were trying to perturb uh, spacetime is to use very high energy densities in the form of uh, an RF resonance system, running a, a beam of light through an RF resonance system uh, and having it focused in a, in a specific area, you know, have the energy de- density focused in a specific area. Uh, and then, you know, doing, we worked for several years while I was at NASA uh, trying to see if we could go through and get out a signal that we felt would be maybe illustrative of the fact that we had some kind of a small change in, in path length as a result of that uh, uh, that large magnitude energy density. Um, but we we never satisfied ourselves that that was in the category that hey we we think we saw something we saw interesting things but you know science you can't just you can't run things up the flagpole until you're, you're really really certain right so uh, you know you know. I, about uh, 20 feet that way is that interferometer, right? So we, we have that equipment over here at Limitless Space Institute. We got that on a, on a space act agreement. Uh, and at some point in time, we might uh, put that uh, put that system back together and get back get back to working on that. Uh, but we've also had some more uh, insights since then as well. And I think we'll talk about that a little later in the show. Uh, some other things that uh, we've, we've learned some interesting things along the way in the process of trying to fill in that gap uh, between you know general relativity and, and quantum mechanics, right? Nice. So you're still searching for that Chicago pile, if you will. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Right. And just just for reference, I guess, or more context for the for the listeners, um, most of w- would you say that most of this is still relevant to the conference paper that's out there? Um, I, I believe that it was. Are titled you talking the warp field 101? Warp warp field mechanics 101. Uh-huh. Is that does that would you say that still holds up um, to the general reader if they want to, like, just kind of? Yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah, that's definitely a good a good resource. Mm-hmm. Workfield Mechanics One Hundred and One. That's a paper, and then I think there's a Workfield Mechanics One Hundred and Two, and that's just a, a PowerPoint presentation. And then there's a, these are all available on the NASA Technical Report Server. Uh, and then I think there's a couple companion videos that go through and show uh, the variation in the York time, how the York time changes as you change the parameters to show the decrease in the magnitude. And then there's a corresponding video that shows the decrease in the, the, the magnitude of the energy density. And those are also available on a NASA YouTube website somewhere, I believe. So, 
Uh, but yeah, those are, I think those are, those are really good references if folks are interested in that. And, and, uh, and a lot of my correspondences with people, I just pointed to that. It's a good kind of primer to go back and, and look at it. There's a, a lot of other good books and papers that are out there as well on, uh, on space work. Some lots of different people that have done neat work. So also, Sonny, I wanted to, uh, since you mentioned the warp time, I mean, I'm sorry, not the warp time, the York time. Um, could you explain that a little bit more? Because I had the impression that the Alcubierre metric was kind of the thing that was bending that we'd see with the expanded space in the back, with the contracted space in the front. But then I got the impression that it was the York time itself that was actually the graph. So I'm a little bit confused about it, like what it actually is. Could you explain the York time a little bit and just like oh, yeah. get that visual uh, more clarified for the audience as well as myself? Yeah, yeah, sure. So New York time actually comes from the Alcubierre metric. You derive New York time uh, from the Alcubierre metric and hel helps you understand the expansion and contraction of space, if you will. Kind of think of it as cubic meters per cubic meter, right? If you think of strain in the engineering sense, it's inches per inch. If you squeeze steel or something like that, it'll it'll compress based on the, the force that you're applying on them. So the New York time is like a three-dimensional version of that, if you will. Uh, a unitless type of thing that helps you understand the expansion and contraction of space in, in response to uh, the model that you're, you're building. And so, um, you know, it, it's, <clears throat> and this gets back to some of my motivation for why I wrote the paper in 2003 to put the Alcubierre metric into canonical form, right? If you think about, so I'm gonna, I'm a little all over the place because uh, this is just really interesting to me. And so I, I like to talk about it a lot, uh, but I'll try and, uh, codify my thoughts to, to make sure I'm, I'm uh, clear here. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, and how does the Alcubierre warp metric even work? I mean, what what's the process whereby it, it, it accomplishes what it accomplishes, right? Is the, you know, expansion and contraction of space, uh, the is that the crux of how this works, right? Or is it uh, something that's secondary to the crux of how this works, right? Uh, and so, you know, is a, the, is, does, the, does the ship go through and initiate this ring of negative vacuum energy density and then space contract in front and expand behind and it knows which, which side is which, um, or is there something else that has to be true? And so uh, in the process of putting the, the Alcubierre metric into canonical form, uh, the, the, the way I, I think of it in terms of looking at the, how you plot the boost field for the, for the metric, it's like we've all been in a big airport. Right, and uh, you've you've got to move from one gate to another. This is like a terrestrial analog for how this this concept might work. Uh, and so, in the process of like, so you're at Atlanta, and you got to go from terminal A to terminal C. You got to go from one one gate to the other, and it's going to take you a long time to get there. Uh, and these airports have gotten <clears throat> they've, they've incorporated these horizontal conveyor belts, right, that people use to help move them more quickly uh, from one gate to another another gate. And so. You know, typically the the way we do things, we walk along in an airport at about three miles an hour, and then if you step onto one of these little uh, travelators or conveyor belts, you still walk at three miles an hour, but you're doing it local to the to the belt that you've now stepped onto, right? And so, um, what a a external observer would see when they're looking at you, they see you walking along at at three miles an hour, and you get on the belt, and they see you moving at six miles an hour. You locally still see yourself as moving it three miles an hour. So you haven't gone any faster than what you were going to begin with, right? Uh, but an external observer now sees you moving at six miles an hour and you're covering the distance as though you're going at six miles an hour because of the belt, right? The belt is in effect contracting space in front of you, right? Because the belt's looping underneath and it's expanding space 
behind you, right? It's, it's stretching out space behind you. So contracting and expanding space. And so you're covering distance more quickly uh, as a result of that. But locally, you still have your initial velocity vector. So looking at the, the canonical form, part of my thought process on how this, how this potentially works is the spacecraft would establish a initial velocity vector. It undergoes real acceleration, establishes a velocity vector relative to heliocentric space, and then it, it turns on this ring, this, this toroidal ring of negative vacuum energy density to create a warp bubble. And then the spacecraft starts going through space faster. It appears to be going faster, although locally it's still going at that unperturbed speed. And so space-time piles up in front. It, it, it compresses in front, contracts in front, and stretches out behind, expands behind. So that's at least a, a thought process that was born from putting the metric in the, in the canonical form where that arrangement of things is how the trick works. And the York time, the expansion and contraction in space is not the catalyst, it's the response. So you have to go through and establish those initial conditions, then turn on the negative vacuum energy density ring. And then this bubble goes careening through space time and space time piles up in front and gets uh, stretched out, uh, uh, stretched in the back, like a, a low pressure region, if you will. Think of like a, a baseball moving through air in terms of a high pressure, low pressure. Hmm. Very interesting, very interesting. Very well put. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I, like, I like the uh, conveyor belt analogy very much. Yeah, you couldn't pay me enough to come up with a good enough analogy like that. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, because that that was one that was on my notes. I was trying to really put a physical picture to to what York time was. I also saw in this report, um, you t you know, you talk about different metrics. You know, the Alcubier metric is the one that this is all based on. But you also bring up something that maybe the the listeners or readers that will go on and and maybe Google this paper. You talk about the the Chung, I don't know how to pronounce oh, it. Oh, the Chung Freeze. Right. Yeah, yeah. Chung Freeze. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is there any, is, like, what's the motivation there for some of the listeners that, that or, you know, or, or even viewers that go ahead and, and, and go sift through this mm -hmm. material, like, kind of help. What's the paper grasp. full title again? Can you uh, read it? Yeah, Warp Drive. Um, warp Drive Mechanics 101, or Warp Field Mechanics 101. No, the Chung Freeze. Uh. Oh, um, you compared the null-like geodesics of the Alcubierre metric to the Chung-Freeze metric. Mm. I was saying, can yeah. you explain the difference? Yeah, right. So in the uh, uh, the uh, so I published a paper in 2007 with Eric Davis at uh, I think it was just a state state conference, mm -hmm. um, but that was some stuff that kind of fed into uh, some thought process doing the energy optimization. On the process of oscillating the bubble, right, uh, oscillating the intensity of the, the negative vacuum energy density in the bubble, mm -hmm. uh, when you go through and you compare, and I'm going to use the term and then I'm going to explain it, compare the null-like geodesics. That's just a, that's just physics speak for light rays. When you, when you, when you compare how the, the light rays behave uh, for the two different metrics, it was this very interesting uh, intersection of the mathematical terms where uh, a, very, a varying intensity, DDT, corresponded to uh, a varying velocity in higher dimensional space-time, which had the net effect of making space-time less stiff. So you remember me talking about one of the two ways of optimizing the space work was change the topology was, was step one, and the other one was oscillate the bubble intensity because that had the net effect of changing the stiffness of space-time. So think about this, right? So you heard me use the, 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 the comparison that York time is like, it, it's analogous to the engineering concept of strain. So if I if I try and take a, you know, a, a, I don't have anything steel around. Oh, here we go. If I try and take an aluminum 
uh, rod and I try and squeeze it with my fingers, I can only put so much strain on it. So I can only put so much inches per inch because I only have so much chemical energy in my, in my muscles. Uh, but if I, instead of trying to squeeze something that's stiff like this, what if I wanted to squeeze, we're heavy on props today. Uh, what if I wanted to squeeze like this small pad of uh, uh, sticky notes or whatever? This is a lot less stiff. So uh, if I had a requirement for the field equations that I have to strain it so many inches per inch or in the York time, so many cubic meters per cubic meter, right? If I had to, to strain it uh, a certain amount, uh, I, I, maybe I don't have enough energy, chemical energy, my, my muscles and my fingers to strain an aluminum uh, uh, rod, but I might have enough to, to squeeze a small pad of uh, paper, if you will. So by changing the stiffness of the medium that I'm trying to interact on is a, the second energy optimization technique. So that was the intersection with the Chung freeze metric, right? It had to do with the higher dimensional physics. And I, I am very much interested in, in higher dimensional physics. I've got a, a six dimensional model I've been working with for uh, the last several years. Interesting. So what actually prompted you to do that? Is that something related to string theory or something? Why, why, did, why even care about higher dimensional? You know, it, it's a, that's a great question, right? Um, is it related to, to string theory? It, it's, it's related to the same path that kind of gets to string theory. Uh, but I don't know that we have to go all the way, the, the same path that they do that, that arrives at uh, string theory. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look at uh, the origin of, of higher dimensional physics, right? Kaluza. Uh, came up with a, a, a five-dimensional paper. Alternately, we would say four plus one. Uh, Kaluza came up with a four plus one metric where he just proposed that there was one additional dimension, spatial dimension. Uh, and I think in his original paper, he didn't even explicitly state that it was curled up yet. He just simply said there was an additional dimension. I think later came out, he said it was curled up, but he didn't say anything about scale. Um, but in the process of just proposing this one additional dimension, uh, he was able to, you know, if you think of the, the four by four uh, 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 matrix that represents general relativity, right, by making it a, a, a five by five, all of a sudden he got, you know, basically electrodynamics on the, on the little picture frame here, just by assuming an extra dimension. And the, <clears throat> the, the origin of the concept of charge was a higher dimensional momentum, if you will, or higher dimensional velocity. Uh, and so that was, you know, that was just, it's called Kaluza's miracle, if you will. But it's like, you just assume an additional dimension and, hey, electrodynamics shows up to the party. What? Um, now, the, there were, there were some, some issues, and, it, and it, I think it usually, it, got, it became the Kaluza-Klein theory where they made it quantized. Uh, and then some additional thought process eventually took, took that thread to what we, what we kind of now know is, is the, the concept of, of string theory. Um, but... I think uh, if you look at adding one more additional dimension, again, assuming that it is curled up and is microscopic, um, assuming one more uh, dimension actually gives you enough degrees of freedom where you can do electric charge and color charge. So you can get, uh, you know, uh, uh, quantum mechanics, electrodynamics, and quantum chromodynamics, right? And so um, there's a, a, a really nice uh, uh, letter written by Paul E., uh, it's in it's in a, a, a book I think anyone that's interested in gauge theory should probably have on their shelf. Uh, it's an English translation of a paper that Paulie wrote to a colleague describing a six-dimensional model uh, where you, you go through and you get uh, quantum chromodynamics as well. Uh, but he assumed a spherical uh, extraspatial uh, model, whereas my thought process is it's going to be potentially toroidal. 
Um, but I have a lot more work to go do on that. That's that's forward work. So nice. I see. Not so this is it. something that's kind of probing into a new area. You're you're really much <laughs> taking the physics end of this right now, rather than the engineering end. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. There, there's there's always trying to you know find ways to to reduce things to practice, right? Because of the in the process of, of working on the frontiers of physics, we always find interesting things. I mean, think about, you know, we discovered uh, 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 Einstein published E equals MC squared in 1905. And in um, 1932, they split the atom. And then, of course, 1945, we had an atomic bomb. Not that that's the greatest achievement. But uh, <laughs> in, in, terms of, in terms of the implications of the physics, though, Right. right. Um, we have nuclear reactors now. I mean, 1905, you know, this just, hey, I wrote a paper, I think energy is equal to this. Right. And then 1932, they conduct this experiment where they, they split an atom for crying out loud. And then by 1945, they have a macroscopic uh, representation of it, which was also fed by all kinds of nuclear reactors that were producing the material uh, for that. So sometimes once you figure out the math, implementation is a lot quicker than we ever thought. And this was before computers and before AI. I mean, think about the geometric progression of, of, of things, right? Right. Very true. Very true. Yeah. All, you know, within a lifetime. So, right. you know. Could be. Could be, <laughs> right? I mean, who, who knows? You just got to get the math figured out first. All right? so. Yeah. People right. were still using horses to travel around with this advanced physics going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of nutty, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing to think, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Sonny, I was going to ask you, you you know, you talk about the toroidal uh, topography that, that was there. Uh, is that uh, – I'm sort of still wrapping my head around it, Not pun not intended. Like wrapping <laughs> – I'm still trying to wrap my head around how you came upon achieving that solution. Because you, you mentioned it was a minimization problem. Is it – Something that you just work in the equations and this geometry pops out. Oh, I, I I see your question. I see your question. Yeah, let me let me back up. When you the, this is so the toroidal distribution is actually baked into the Alcubierre metric, right? The the optimization is how you the distribution that you create around the spacecraft. In the in the previous analyses that had been done, they always assumed that the toroidal distribution, right? Because again, that's just baked into the mathematics that toroidal distribution has always been assumed to be razor thin, right? So that it has that aspect ratio of, of you know, a, a wedding band where, the, where right. the, the, you know, the walls of the ring of the warp ring are super, super thin as opposed to uh, considerably thicker, right? So, so the toroidal thing is just, that's a requirement of the model, of the Alcubierre model. It does require the, the toroidal ring of negative vacuum energy density, but all the stuff that had been published before I, I did the work in, in 2011 and 2012, assumed a very, very thin right. aspect ratio. Oh, okay. So th this was the parameter shifting that you were talking mm -hmm. about. Okay. I yeah. gotcha. I gotcha. Right. The yeah, there's a, there's a shell thick, there's a, there's a shell thickness parameter Sigma in the equations. And then mm -hmm. I, I changed the, the, that shell thickness parameter to show how that changed the, the magnitude of the York time. If you think gotcha. about that plot that showed, it looks like a wave, if you will, right. with a little center disc changes the height of the, the leading wave and trailing wave. Uh, reduces the magnitude of that as you make that ring thicker. The amount of strain you have to put on uh, space-time comes way down, nonlinear. And of course, there's a significant reduction in the magnitude of the negative vacuum energy density. I see. I see. Well put. S speaking of negative vacuum energy density, do you have any ideas 
what it could be. How do we achieve that negative vacuum energy? Right, right. Uh, do, do we have like a, we have a cup of it around anywhere that we can go pour into a tank, right? Yeah, yeah I'm trying to figure yeah. out what do you guys have at LSI over there that you're hiding <laughs> from us? Right, right. Yeah, I'll run back to the fridge. I'll go, yeah, no. Uh, um, you know, so in, in, the, in the context of um, uh, general relativity, right, exotic matter, right? Uh, Al-Kubir talks about that in his paper, violates all these energy conditions. It's negative mass. I mean, what does that even mean, right? Uh, and so in the context of general relativity, it's difficult to say, how would we manifest that? It's not like we have a, you know, an acme pump of uh, uh, exotic matter that Wiley Coyote can go get to go get the, uh, the roadrunner, right? But um, uh, uh, in Okubier's paper, to his credit, he highlights and says, hey, look, you know, remember me saying we two standard models of physics, general relativity, right? Exotic matter. Don't really know how to how to make that. But we got quantum mechanics, and quantum mechanics posits this thing called negative vacuum energy density. That's something that's manifested in a phenomenon known as the uh, the Casimir force. And so Alcubierre highlighted in his paper. He said, although we don't know how to m- manifest exotic matter in in the way we understand general relativity today, quantum mechanics may provide us a path because there's this thing called negative vacuum energy density that has all the mathematical characteristics. That exotic matter has, and maybe that could be a suitable proxy uh, to allow us to manifest uh, negative vacuum energy density to start to try and figure out if we can uh, satisfy these field equations. So quantum mechanics may provide us a way to do that, uh, and I, I can explain that the Casimir force really quickly if you want me to. Yeah, please. sure. And actually, maybe if you can even tie it in, I saw just to shout out one of our um, members as well, uh, Chris Stops, uh, K-Theory on YouTube. He actually had it linked us to this paper related to uh, worldline um, numerics and the Casimir Force. So if you can even maybe yeah. tie that in there somehow as well, we'd really like oh, yeah. to uh, know more about that. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so the, the Casimir Force, uh, and for the, for the folks that aren't seeing this, I apologize. I'm going to use some hand puppets, but I'll try and describe them. Um, so the Casimir phenomena is a result of the fact, you know, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, um, empty space is not really empty. There are virtual particles popping into and out of existence all the time. The, the, the quantum vacuum at the microscopic level is this frothing sea of virtual particles, virtual fermion, anti-fermion pairs. Um, so a, uh, an observable consequence of the presence of this, this, this characteristic of nature at the microscopic level is the Casimir force. And it can be thought of in the following way. If you imagine two plates uh, in close proximity to one another. So for the folks that are not seeing me, I'm putting my hands close together like I'm about to clap, right? And so if you, if you imagine you have two, two plates that are in very close proximity to one another, separation distance that's, uh, you know, microns, if you will. Um, and these plates are very, very tiny, like, you know, 30 microns by 30 microns. And we're going to conduct a little thought experiment where we take these two plates and we put them in a vacuum chamber. And we're going to turn on the vacuum pumps and pull all of the air out of the, the vacuum chamber so that there's absolutely positively no air particles in there whatsoever. And we're going to imagine for a moment that uh, uh, Terrence has superpowers. He can shrink himself down to being a, a little tiny atomic person, right? And he, he's going to go in there and go make some measurements and report back to Juan what he, what, he, what he reads. He's going to go measure the pressure on the outside of the plates and the pressure between the plates. And so when he calls Juan, Juan is expecting him to say, because of our classical world experience, Juan is expecting uh, Terrence to say zero pressure on the outside and zero pressure in between the two plates. But what uh, what Terrence reports back to Juan, he says zero pressure on the outside, like he expects, but he says it's 
negative vacuum energy density or negative pressure in between the two plates, right? So there's a, there's a deficiency of vacuum fluctuations that are able to be manifest between those two plates because they restrict which wavelength of vacuum fluctuations can be manifested between them, if you will, because there's only so much room, right? And so vacuum fluctuations that are uh, uh, above a certain size cannot manifest in between those two plates, but they can manifest on the outside of the plates. So that sets up the scenario where there's a deficiency of vacuum energy between the two plates, and that results in a force that pulls those two plates together called the Casimir force. Now, interesting thing, and you know, so this is measured in, in 96 by uh, Lamoureux, and it's uh, to the physics community satisfaction. It's been measured countless numbers of times by physicists all over the planet. But there's also another interesting characteristic, right? The quantum vacuum, if you try and slide those two plates relative to one another, it's like a stickiness that resists even sliding the two plates. The two plates. It's like the transverse Casimir force, and so that's also uh, uh, been measured, right? So it's it's a very uh, uh, a counterintuitive thing from our classical physics experience, uh, but it's a very real thing, right? And, and perhaps quantum mechanics is more fundamental than anything else. Uh, we just have yet to develop a, 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 sufficient, a sufficient enough understanding to understand all the subtleties of this phenomenon. So I'll, I'll pause and then answer your, 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 your challenge, uh, Terrence, on the numeric world line. Cool, cool. So um, I don't know if it was a specific uh, challenge on the numerics world line, but I guess we just wanted to really know more about it since it is kind of a new paper. I think it was, what, 2021 you published? And you had these interesting kind of layouts for measuring these things, and you had some, even some, I think it was SEM drawings or something, or SEM photos of some of the, uh, the um, what would you call it, the, uh, the devices that you would use to actually measure these uh, forces. Um, uh, right. So, yeah, the, uh, so the, we published a paper in, in 2021 based on some work we were doing uh, uh, for DARPA, uh, building some custom Casimir cavities. Uh, we were trying to, you know, like I, I gave you that, that uh, hand puppet uh, illustration of the Casimir force by using two plates. Uh, we've been in the process of trying to make plates that also have like, you know, uh, flagpole pillar structures between those two plates. Uh, so we're trying to understand how the quantum vacuum responds to that, that slightly different topology, this customized uh, Casimir phenomenon. So it causes the quantum vacuum to respond in a very different way than just a standard uh, parallel plate cavity. And so the, the numerical analysis technique that we use to, to model that is something called the, uh, the numeric world line technique. It's like a, a string theory inspired approach that, um, uses a you know quantum effective action um and in effect it's like you you create a uh, uh it's really hard to do without uh, uh graphics but i'm, I'm going to try you create like a uh, an, an array of scalar vacuum field fluctuations it's like a, a series of little uh, little clouds of a bunch of little lines that kind of connected right so it's like a, a dust ball looking type of thing that, that has a uh, meets a lot of the requirements of the mathematics and you have maybe you have a hundred of those maybe you have a thousand of those and then you you go to a particular point in the model and you scale each little dust ball until such time as the the little tiny threads of the dust ball touch two or more objects in your model potentials like the, the two walls or a wall and a pillar right and then you go through and you you add up the uh, you aggregate uh, a, a little bit of a negative vacuum energy density for each time that hit occurs at a, whatever the scale is that helps you scale the amount of energy based on the, the wavelength of, the, of where that scalar scalar field vacuum fluctuation 
touch two of the potentials. Then that helps you understand the distribution of negative vacuum energy density, because it's not just this isotropic thing that exists between the two Casimir cavities. It's, it's got structure to it. And so that last little bit, you know, there's structure to this uh, negative vacuum energy density. Uh, that kind of maybe leads into what you were, you were hinting at, Terrence, uh, with your question. Uh, you know, how does this relate to the idea of a, of a space warp? Because we're, you know, we were talking about space warps, and then we talked about negative vacuum energy density, and then we started talking about custom Casimir cavities. How does it connect back to the, to the space warp now? Uh, so it is a potential source of negative vacuum energy density, yes, which could maybe fulfill the requirement, but a really cool accidental discovery that came out of the process of modeling these custom Casimir cavities, where you've got two plates with uh, you know, a, a little uh, small rod that goes all the way down the center, if you will. When we looked at the, the, the distribution of negative vacuum energy density around that, that flagpole that goes down in between the two plates, that energy density distribution looked like a two-dimensional representation of what's required for the Alcubierre warp metric. And so in the process of looking at the, the custom Casimir cavity, it was like, wait, we, I, we know what this looks like. Uh, it's really close to what's required, but it's not toroidal, right? We want it to be toroidal. In this case, it's prismatic. They're just these long prismatic uh, uh, curled lenticular shapes, uh, but we wanted a, a toroidal distribution. So we went through and we uh, we created a, um, a model. I'm looking for props here. Uh, oh, oh, well. So I, I'll, I'll do it this way. So we, we imagined a, uh, a four micron diameter cylinder. And so we, we put a, a small spherical ball in the center, in the dead center of this uh, four micron cylinder, right? So we have a four micron cylinder with a one micron uh, sphere uh, positioned directly in the middle. And the process of looking at how the, uh, the quantum vacuum responds to that shape, it manifests a toroidal negative vacuum energy density that meets the Alcubierre work requirements. And so that was something we wanted to detail in our paper that we published in the EPJC, because this is the first time in the peer-reviewed literature that we can say to the community, if you build this specific structure, it is predicted to manifest a negative vacuum energy density such that it should generate a nanoscale warp model. Don't get excited. It's not going to go zipping off anywhere. It's not going to do anything like that. Uh, but it's going to have you know, optical characteristics. And as a matter of you know, um, uh, the Chicago pile, right, is it, is it, is it like the first time of something, that's a very significant uh, potential turn of events, right? Remember, you know, 1905 equals MC squared, 1932, splitting an atom, you know, things can move really quickly uh, if you can go through and, and kind of follow that kind of progression. So anyway, uh, we, we think it was important from that perspective. Um, at some point in time, we'd like to go think about what kind of an experiment could we go conduct to try and uh, measure any type of uh, predicted characteristics of the warp bubble. Uh, we don't have any idea yet. We said in the paper that that's a matter of forward work. We proposed a couple of uh, thought processes, but that's something we'd like to look at in the future. Very interesting. So you've, you've got all this stuff laid out for, you know, a lot of people to really undertake if they really would, you know. Um, have you had any other collaborators at all that have tried to actually help you out with some of this stuff, you know, take on some of these projects, test for themselves, you know, uh, corroborate some of the things that you guys are finding? Mm -hmm. 
So certainly the, you know, the, measuring the, the Casimir phenomena uh, is a very active area. We're, we're certainly not the only people uh, looking at the Casimir phenomena in, in all of its different uh, uh, implementations. But uh, there's a number of folks that are <clears throat> kind of working on the frontiers of physics in a, in a similar domain that, that we are. You know, we're, we're focused on something called the dynamic vacuum model. Um, again, trying to fill in the gap between the two standard models of physics. And you've got several, you know, several folks that are working on things like that. Uh, John Bush at MIT, uh, you know, he's working on uh, 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 hydrodynamic quantum field theory. Uh, he's also very interested in, in the aspects of the, the dynamic vacuum model that we're thinking about. We published a paper in, in Physics Open where we, we derived an acoustic wave equation from the Schrodinger equation and then built a, a model of the hydrogen atom to show that all the electron orbitals are acoustic resonances in this underlying dynamic vacuum. Uh, and so he's, uh, he and his um, postdoc student, Adam Kay, uh, have been doing uh, a lot of work. Uh, they, we actually gave them a, a grant for interstellar initiative grants here at LSI. Uh, and they've done some work to expand their approaches into three-dimensional space and uh, I think they're going to start working on trying to uh, show that spin is a, a vorticity in this uh, quantum vacuum, uh, uh, dynamic vacuum, whatever. So, right. uh, and then you've got so, you know a number of other people that are working on the, the quantum foundations that kind of trace to this uh, uh, pilot wave model type of, of thinking of things. So, yeah, I was going to say, Sonny, it, it, it's very reminiscent of of some of those early um, conversations that physicists were having in the foundations of quantum mechanics about um, how to look at certain things. I, I think um, f for the more astute uh, physics students, I think they'll find that in, in the quantum mechanics book in Griffiths, they kind of proposed, or he kinds of like highlights this uh, look at spin as this, um, how did you put it? How, what did you say? Vorticity it? or a curl, right. if you will. Right, right. And um, and I think early, there were some attempts there, but I don't think the math could be fully, uh, uh, how would you say, sussed out even. And then there was also, um, I think really early on, I don't know if it was Schrodinger or um, De Broglie. De Broglie, uh, for some people. Yeah, De, De Broglie. Yeah, De, De Broglie. Right. <laughs> De Broglie. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I've heard it both and, ways. So I'm just uh, <laughs> th there uh, was um there was some th something that that you said that kind of uh, turned a light on in my head about um, I think it was De Broglie, where he was just saying that um you get this uh, how would how would you say this that. I guess you're trying to form a pilot wave kind of uh, picture. Um, right. Because you're trying to have these observables. I don't know if that informed your paper in any way. Um, I don't know if you... Right. So, yeah, yeah this good good narrative, right? I'll, I'll go down a little bit of history, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, De Broglie was, was um, you know, he's the guy that came up with the, the thought process that matter is, is both a particle and a wave, right? right? So he kind of coined that phraseology. Uh, but he meant that literally. He didn't mean it in just the you know the, the metaphysical sense, if you will. Uh, you know, matter is uh, a, a real thing that interacts with some kind of a wave, and the wave pilots it and kind of tells it where to go. There's some kind of an interaction, and the, the details of the the particle and wave were, were still potentially uh, to be worked out. But um, De Broglie presented his ideas uh, like at a physics conference in uh, Solvay in 1927, uh, very uh, important physics conference in the history of. Of a lot of ideas uh, that was one of them right and uh, 
And so in 1927, he presented his ideas. This is at the dawn of quantum mechanics, right? The uh, Copenhagen interpretation probably got baked in primarily on 1931, 1932. So this is just a little bit before that. Uh, and during that, during that presentation at the physics conference at Solvay, uh, you know, some of the concerns that were raised were uh, De Broglie's uh, mathematics uh, suggested that uh, you could potentially have um, uh, uh, spooky action at a distance, if you will, uh, some kind of a non-local characteristic of it. And so there were some concerns about that. Uh, and so that kind of created a lot of resistance to the idea in the, in, in the 27 time frame. But, you know, obviously, you know, the concept of quantum entanglement is, is a real thing today. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to, to think about uh, some of the objections that were raised at the time. Um, but, uh, you know, his, his initial mathematics, mathematical implementation by itself is not what a lot of people think, think about today when you talk about pilot wave. There's been a lot of work uh, since then. Uh, John Bush, is, he's got a couple of really good, um, uh, thorough and rigorous overviews of a lot of different thoughts that have come since 1927, coming all the way through to today, mm -hmm. uh, to try and develop deeper understandings and add additional sophistication uh, to the thought process. Uh, and so um, I, I think uh, pilot wave today, it's a, a definitely an active area of investigation for you know a subset of folks that are interested in this quantum foundation. But there are several other competing ideas too, right? So don't don't just think you know pilot wave is is the, the one and only thing. There's other other different thought processes that people have. The many worlds interpretation, uh, transactional interpretation of quantum mechanics. Uh, there's uh, several other different flavors of things that people are thinking about. Uh, but myself and a number of folks are very interested in things that would probably be categorized in this pilot wave. Mm -hmm. Pretty interesting. Yeah, um, I, I was going to say, I don't know if you had any more questions. I, I kind of wanted to bring up a, a Q&A. Some folks had some questions for you in the audience. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, if, if, I don't know if Terrence No, had, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Um, <clears throat> on the topic of waves, um, there was a listener here that wanted to ask, um, does your drive – or I guess this is kind of a loaded question. Yeah. But. <laughs> do you want to shout out listener too, or do they not want to? Um, no, it was an aggregated oh, uh, okay, list okay. of questions, so I can't really gotcha. shout them out. But if they, if this well, is shout your... out if you know who you are. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> does your drive generate gravitational waves since it accelerates a highly curved region of space time? <clears throat> so interestingly enough, right the. Uh, uh, that's a great question. Um, hmm. What, so one of the things that comes to mind when you talk about acceleration, mm -hmm. the, the proper acceleration alpha uh, for the Alcubierre work metric is actually formally zero, right? So when you, when you turn on the work bubble, alpha is zero. So it, the, the crew is at zero G, uh, and it's not like they go splatting against the bulkhead and you know kill the entire crew <laughs> and roll credits most depressing episode of star trek ever um uh, the, the alpha is formally zero right so um i'm thinking that the answer might be no but i i think that might be too quick of an answer because I, I think it might be more interesting to maybe think about a little deeper right but so my, my initial answer is alpha is formally zero uh so that's what that's the first thing that comes to mind but the other part of me is like, yeah, yeah, but that's still a good question. It might be interesting mm -hmm. to think further. So, mm -hmm. nice, nice. So the user, so the 
our audience got uh, Sonny to think a little bit about the question. That's good. <laughs> well, I, I also want to add, maybe, I don't know if Sonny, you can shoot this down, give it give it a thumbs down, but I'm thinking of sort of the, the pilot, um, I don't know, there's, there's a picture of a uh, droplet um, huh? that I think, a rec- I don't remember who did this, but there was a researcher who kind of had this... Um, this like oil droplet riding a, uh, um, around in this, uh, how would you say? This like, Quantum, oh, well, yeah, yes, yes. Oh, so, what you're speaking is so of is uh, walking mind. droplets. Yeah, wa- right. walking droplets. That is a that is a beautiful area. It's like a quantum analog, right? Mm-hmm. It was, uh, I think, discovered by uh, Professor Coudet over at University of Paris in France. Uh, you have a silicon bath, a bath of right. silicon oil. Yes. It's vibrating just below the Faraday frequency, so about 60 hertz. Uh, and you can go through and take like a you know toothpick or something and put it into the, the oil, pull out a tiny little droplet, and then that droplet will ride on top of a monochromatic wave. Mm-hmm. And so the droplet doesn't have enough time to completely wet and recombine with the surface because the, the air gap between the droplet and the surface of the, the oil bath uh, can still put force on the droplet, pushes it back up, and it continues to drop. Uh, it continues to bounce, rather. And so right. uh, this is something called a walking droplet. Uh, and so Kude, uh, when he was doing some work on this, like I think the 2000s, uh, he saw what he thought might be some quantum mechanical characteristics of this thing, right? And he's thinking, you know, pilot wave, there's a wave that's telling this droplet where to go. It seems like some stuff I remember reading in all the different right. thought processes in physics over the years. And so they started conducting experiments and they were able to duplicate a lot of quantum phenomena in a large classical system, right? So, you know, for the listeners, you can Google walking droplets and waste an entire Saturday looking at all these amazing videos. So you can blame me tomorrow while you're, you know, looking at stuff on walking <laughs> droplets. Uh, just, a, just an amazing zoology of, of different experiments that have been done that duplicate the double slit experiment, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Quantum tunneling. Uh, an electron trapped in a, a quantum corral. I mean, all these things have been duplicated, and it's kind of beautiful to see that. And it's funny you mention that because uh, sometimes I wonder. Um, David Bohm is another guy that was very interested in, in pilot wave theory. He did some work in the fifties, uh, but it never really stuck then either. Um, and sometimes I wonder. I, I remember hearing David Bohm give an interview in the late seventies, and he was trying to explain his thought process on on. Uh, his his particular model of pilot wave, and he was using some kind of a, a, a verbal experiment of something, and I was listening to him, and I'm like, I don't understand what this guy's talking about <laughs> at all. And I'm thinking to myself, what would that physics conference in Solvay been like in 1927 if somebody said, you know, when they came in, is a hey, before this thing starts, uh, you know, uh, I just wanted to show you guys some neat experiments and go through and and do this experiment with quantum mechanics, quantum, you know, demonstrating quantum mechanical things on this, this classical thing right before your eyes, right. uh, you know, how would that have potentially influenced the, the development of, of our understanding of physics, right? You know, maybe we wouldn't have two standard models of physics. Maybe we'd have a, we'd have at least a, a little bit closer to a, a single model, right? Let, something that might connect more of uh, general activity and quantum mechanics. Right. So, yes, water droplets, good stuff. Yeah. The, <laughs> well, the droplet picture, I, I want to say it's kind of like, you're, you're not necessarily generating waves. It's like, um, so, so I guess, I, I mean, I don't know if, if the listener wants some help, maybe sort of seeing an analog to kind of give you a picture. If there, if there, if the theory says there's no generation of waves, 
maybe that can kind of give i don't know i don't that's what i was saying you can either thumbs this up the thumbs is down i don't know <laughs> well, well, like he's thumbing it up so or sideways oh, I, I, I see yeah. what you're saying come up with a walking drop with analog uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> you you could do that it's just you have to be careful about the the transition from 3d to 2d because that is a significant change mm-hmm. right and that's uh because uh, John Bush has worked in 2D for a very, very long time, and he made the switch to 3D, uh, you know, in the last uh, 18 months. Uh, the work that we've been doing with the dynamic vacuum model, we were, we've always been in 3D, right? So if you were to, if, if you were to try and go from 3D back to 2D, you'd have to be very careful about that transition, right? Mm-hmm. What, what are you abstracting out in the process of doing that? So. Okay. All right, well, do you have any more questions from the uh, audience, or is that the um, only one? Yeah, there's one here. I think this one was interesting. Okay. So shout out to the listener. How far does the sh- quote unquote ship have to be from any valuable matter when entering or exiting warp drive to prevent destruction or damage? Oh, yeah. I've always wondered about the warp drive stuff. Like, how do you navigate around stuff? You know, because if you're just going shoom, straight, you know, straight in the line, it's <laughs> well, like you're, you're going to go- hit something, aren't you? Well, if you're going fast <laughs> enough, I mean, you would if if you have a wave nature about you, maybe you can tunnel through it. <laughs> I don't know. Let's so, see. so here, so this, so this goes back to the the, the whole, you know, the the how does this phenomenon potentially work? What's mm-hmm. the uh, the root cause? Mm-hmm. And I'll go back to the the terrestrial example of about you know a person walking through an airport and you're walking on that little horizontal travelator, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you're walking along at, uh, uh, and I'll answer the question about mass right after this, but this is kind of speaking to your, your narrative first. Sure. So you're walking along at three miles an hour and you get on the travel later, you're walking along, you're still walking locally at three miles an hour, right? You, you're, you're not going six miles an hour as someone on the bench might see you, you're doing three miles an hour. And we've all been in an airport from time to time where we're, you know, uh, on the travel and somebody has uh, their family with them. They got a a young kid, a three to five year old that just has a lot of energy and they want to, they want to kind of run themselves out. And so they, they, they see that travel later and they just, I have to go backwards on the travel later because it, why not? Right. And so uh, the little kiddo goes on the travel later and goes counter flow to everything. And so as the kid's running down, it might run into you. Right. And so what is that? How does that a collision occur? So that a collision, the collision occurs at the unperturbed state, right? Because the, 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 the child collides with your legs when they're running counterflow because they're now in the bubble with you, if you will, right? So in order for the collision to occur, the collision has to occur such that the two entities are, are at the same frame. And so the collision uh. occurs at the unperturbed speed, right? So if you have a, 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 a spacecraft um, that's uh, doing uh, one-tenth the speed of light before you turn on the warp drive, right? And then you turn on the warp drive such that it it augments the apparent velocity so that you're going at uh, effectively 10 times the speed of light as measured by somebody looking at you, right? Um, uh, but you you run into some dust, uh, interstellar dust. The collision would occur at the at the point one c. It's not a good it's not a good thing, but it's not as bad as ten c, <laughs> right? right? Uh, so there there is potentially a difference. So uh, that was speaking to something that you were talking about, Juan. Uh, but back to the question of you know how far do you have to be away from something before you turn this on? Uh, in principle, I don't know that you have to be far from anything. You could, you could potentially maybe engage this thing in the atmosphere and you don't have to go 10 C. Maybe you just want to go 8,000 miles an hour. I don't know. Just there wouldn't be anything that would really preclude it, but it still gets into your question though, Terrence about the, you know, what are the, 
what do the geodesics for this system look like? <laughs> right. That's a good, because you got, now you got multiple frames. So there's probably a way to answer it. I just haven't, I, I've thought that very question about how do you stitch together all these different frames. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, there's nothing in principle to preclude you from running a, 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 a warp ring, right, inside an atmosphere, if you will. Uh, and you could, so it's almost like you could have, maybe you have a, a transport that goes 600 miles an hour, but you want to cover distance at 8,000 miles an hour. And so you could do that without atmospheric heating, because remember the collisions occur at the unperturbed speed um, and no sonic booms, right? So. Mm -hmm. Wow. Cool, cool. Yeah, I think um, I think the, we're nearing we're nearing on time. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to save. I, I think those were two of the really interesting questions. Ones. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I think we should conclude um, with some of the LSI stuff. You sure. Know, kind of talk yeah. about that. So, Sonny, I guess we just wanted to kind of uh, end the podcast towards talking about like, you know, um, our audience is made, is composed of a bunch of you know students, like undergrads, graduates. We got professionals in the field. Even layman too. We wanted to kind of just see like, what do you guys do at LSI? How could people who are potentially interested in this kind of stuff get involved? You know, maybe people who may not necessarily be scientists. You know, what are some of the things that you guys are trying to look for? You know, just if you could speak about LSI a little bit, uh, just for the audience. Oh yeah, thank you, thank you, Terrence. Yeah. Um, so you know, as I said at the beginning, the mission is to inspire and educate the next generation to travel beyond our solar system and to support the research and development of enabling technologies. Our, our pinnacle objective is to enable interstellar travel by the turn of the century. So that is that is an amazingly difficult challenge uh, and it requires a lot of doing to try and achieve that kind of a, a challenge. And so, you know, LSI, we inspire and educate by doing, right? Uh, and we have a number of programs that are geared towards uh, trying to make some kind of measured progress uh, towards that. You remember me talking about the three different swim lanes, you know, nuclear uh, fusion and, and breakthrough. Uh, so those are kind of the, the three t t flavors of ice cream, if you will, that we tend to think about when we when we put together these different programs. Um, in 2000, we put out a, uh, a solicitation for proposals from people in academia all over the globe uh, to give us their ideas on R&D that they wanted to conduct uh, with students. Um, related to any of those three types of thought processes and maybe even a little bit broader. Uh, and so we funded nine different teams, uh, funding things ranging from beamed energy propulsion, uh, relativistic solar sails. Uh, we funded four teams working on fusion propulsion, uh, two teams working on a space drive, and then one team working on a traversable wormhole. Um, we have uh, Texas A&M uh, on a university partnership uh, working on a detailed engineering design of a portable nuclear reactor that would fit in a 40-foot convex container. So this is this is terrestrial use. It uh, uh, intersects very closely with uh, Project Pele, a Department of Defense program that's paying people <clears throat> to go try and make these 40-foot, you know, compact nuclear reactors. But we're trying to do a detailed white paper study to say we can design these reactors so that they are forward compatible use. Uh, uh, forward compatible with being used in space, right? Uh, in terms of that that first swim lane, that nuclear swim lane that I was talking about. Uh, we will be putting out a, another solicitation uh, for the second second biennial, biennial round of interstellar initiative grants uh, in the coming months. Um, uh, so we'll be funding a, a whole other round of, of, uh, of teams to do work. 
We're going to add to that program. We're going to add uh, fellowships uh, and postdocs. Uh, so we'll potentially uh, have the opportunity for uh, up to two years worth of funding for a, a, a postdoc or a, a graduate student uh, doing work in this domain. Uh, we're adding scholarships. So we'll be putting out some stuff on for folks to go try and uh, secure scholarships for undergraduates. Um, we've also opened up an initiative called Lab Boosters, where we can we can start to work in the like the K through 12 range. Even uh, we just partnered with um, Arizona College Prep High School, Miss Roshna Nath. Uh, she's got a, a STEM a group of STEM kiddos, about 32 kiddos. They'll be working on some uh, space projects, and we'll be mentoring them, and we've given them some resources to uh, go through and, and do that work. Uh, and so uh, we. You know, teaching classes. We uh, we taught a class last summer. We'll probably be doing some more stuff uh, this summer. Um, so lots of uh, lots of doing here and there. Uh, you can go check our website, limitlessspace.org. Um, you can always you know keep keep abreast of the things we're doing there. Um, and then we have a YouTube channel, so you can go check out our YouTube channel. Our our interstellar initiative grants. We you know we we recorded all the briefings from the proposers from kickoff, midterm to finale. Uh, so all of that stuff is available. I mean, hours and hours and hours of gritty, gritty stuff. So, you know, if anyone wants to go spend a lot of time with that, it's available for you. We got it chapterized. Uh, take a look at that. And there's lots of other stuff we continue to update there. And we have all the standard social media stuff that we try and continue to communicate. So, Fantastic. Excellent. So uh, I guess, Sonny, that's just pretty much the end of the show. Um, did you have anything else that you wanted to plug, like any other projects, maybe not necessarily related to LSI, maybe just your own physics pet project or something? Anything else that you wanted to share with the audience, maybe? Uh, you know, uh, thank you guys for uh, putting together this podcast. You know, it's uh, it's important to try and, and uh, communicate with one another, and, and it's neat to see you guys taking time and effort to put together this podcast and try and you know, just, just like we talked about, inspire and educate to try and connect with people. And, and and you guys go through and you find interesting people that you think it'd be beneficial for them to come talk with you and then and talk with people. So thank you guys for your efforts. This is not an easy thing to go do. So uh, I see you. I recognize you. I applaud you. Keep up the, the good work. So I think I, I just want to finish with that. Good good job. Uh, and I love the name, Eigen Bros. That's awesome. <laughs> love we it. greatly appreciate it. Yeah, so, uh, thanks for the love, Sonny. We really do yep. appreciate it. And thanks for coming on. Uh, you know, we could, I would love to stay in chat. You know, I, I would, I would invite you, uh, I would send you a link to the discord, but I don't, <laughs> I think he has we, better things. To yeah, do. I'm sure, I'm sure you're a busy man, but you know, we, you know, we'd love to keep chit chatting, but we, it's, mm. it's getting, it's getting late here in the, in the day, but thank you again for coming on. Yes. Yeah, so of course, thank you guys, the audience. Um, guys, uh, make sure you like, share, comment, subscribe if you have not done so already. Make sure you check out that uh, Instagram, Eigen Bros, Twitter, Eigen Bros. We have, uh, what, what else, Juan? EigenBros.com. Yes. Uh, Eigen Bros 2 on TikTok. Mm-hmm. And then patrons, guys, thank you once again for letting this happen. You know, you guys help inspire us to have great guests like Sonny on as well. Um, so check out patreon.com slash Eigen Bros. Uh, we do 30-minute podcast there. You get Discord access. Mm-hmm. And you guys, if you talk to us, you know, make suggestions who else you want to see. And I think that's it. And uh, thanks again, Sonny. Sonny. Hey, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Terrence. Thank you, Juan. Thank you, Sonny. All right. <laughs>